week in Hebrews, and obviously we're continuing this week in Hebrews, but just a couple of the big themes from last week is that Jesus is the ultimate prophet, he is the ultimate priest, and he is the ultimate king. To know him, which through the prophetic word, as well as through the experience of the apostles and those that are around him, uh, people get to, to know who he is. He is the son of God. And knowing that he's the son of God certainly changes things. And then to know him is to love him. And to love, that seems to follow under kingship because he is that righteous king. He is the best leader, the best ruler that life, that humanity has ever met. And then lastly, Jesus as that atoning sacrifice, that priest, to know him is to trust him. And to love him is to trust him. And trust is so important, especially in that priestly line, that Jesus has done what you can't, which is exactly why you need to rely on his accomplished works and not your accomplished works for salvation. So he is that ultimate prophet, that ultimate priest, and an ultimate king. And also, this letter, and especially this sermon, is an exhortation, which means encouragement. And that's exactly what this is. It's going to encourage you that you are definitely on the right track when you have your faith in Jesus. <laughs> you can be totally on the wrong track if you don't <laughs> have your faith in Jesus. Because he is the Lord of all. He is enthroned in all the realms above. And as you see from the four different points, uh, the first point is going to be very big because there's a lot to talk about in that. But then the other ones just flow through very easily because you have to understand the first part of the difference between angels and the Son of God. And so, without further ado, let's worship our Lord and Savior Jesus. So, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth for life. And thank you, Jesus, for being the way, the truth, and the life. So this is how we get back to the Father is through you, Lord Jesus, because you are that perfect prophet, you are that perfect priest, and you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so, Lord Jesus, tune our hearts and our minds to your will as we approach your word. Let our spirits be filled and let us be encouraged by your truth. All this I pray in our Lord and Savior Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So the text for this morning is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5 through 14. And it goes like this. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, but like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed. 
but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Amen. Praise the Lord. So, why angels? That's probably the first question many of us have in, in this whole scenario. Why angels? And I'm going to tell you truthfully, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think anybody knows except the author why angels specifically. Were they worshiping angels? Is this a little bit like Catholicism where they're worshiping saints and now they've decided to worship like Gabriel and Michael or, or what's going on in this? that uh, caused the author to have this comparison and contrast between the Son of God as well as the angels. But realistically, and what, what seems to be reasonably, there is a contrast there between the angels and the Son of God that is close but miles apart. And part of the reason why I say it's close is because angels are supernatural beings that are able to dwell in the Garden of Eden with God. So, there's some of that similarity there. But let's go into the whole thing, and then we'll have a comparison and contrast here. Because if we're ever going to have a talk about angels, this would be the passage to have a talk about angels in. And so, let's keep it real. Angel talk. They are real. Angels exist today. Yes. <laughs> All right, thank you. I just wanted to get your, your attention there. They are mentioned roughly 300 times throughout all of Scripture, uh, depending on who you ask or what constitutes as angel discussion. We have the word angel that you see in the New Testament here in Greek. We've got cherubim, we've got seraphim, uh, other natures uh, like that. Uh, the only like angels that we technically know about or that are mentioned by name are Gabriel and Michael, Michael being the archangel or the chief of the angels. And so let me, let me bookend it here in a minute for you, but humans are not angels, okay? And the philosophy behind when a human being dies and goes to heaven, they become an angel, is wrong. The Bible never talks about this. Angels are very different created beings than a human being. In fact, what I know about being in Christ is that when I am in heaven with the Lord Jesus, I am ranked above the angels myself, as you are too in all of this. So that's pretty fascinating to me and not something I've regularly think about, especially, you know, uh, we're called to live a humble life, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives. But some of these blessings that we get through the Lord Jesus are just amazing and give us so much hope and encouragement to look towards to the future. But again, there's none like higher than Jesus himself. And that's kind of what verse 4 says in the beginning and what we talked about last week. Uh, having become superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. But let me bookend it in the Bible for you too. Angels are first mentioned in Genesis chapter 3 and the cherubim. And this is after the fall. This is after they've eaten off the tree of, of good and evil. And those 
cherubim were set there along with a flaming sword to guard the tree of life from human beings. So they are, and, and to take a point from this, they are those supernatural beings that can be in heaven with God, or at least in that moment in the Garden of Eden with God. But regardless, they are good. Now, some of them can ultimately be bad. But the first thing you need to know is that there are those supernatural beings. Second thing, let's go all the way to Revelation. Revelation chapter 12. There is a massive fight in heaven coming between Michael and his angels and the dragon and his angels. Now we know who wins because the Lord is Lord of all and he has called it, he has prophesied it, and it is going to happen. Just the rest is all the 300 plus prophecies of the Old Testament talking about the Messiah have come to fruition. But in this massive fight too between Michael and his angels and the dragon and his angels, you need to see that they are warriors and that they are an army if you will, that there are many, a multitude, very, very many. Next, let's go to the Gospels. Let's go to Luke chapter 1. And angels told the shepherds good news. They told them about the coming of the Messiah. They pointed them to the star. They pointed them to Jesus. Now, we can go throughout all and a lot of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, and even starting with Abraham when he had his visits from the angels, like they were messengers. They were coming to tell him. And in fact, that's what angel means, is messenger of God in its simplest form in the Greek. So, also... Now, now going back, now that they're messengers, let's go back to the Old Testament again, and let's talk about uh, Genesis chapter, oh, I forget, I think it was 8, but Abraham has the experience where he finds out that Sarah is going to become pregnant, Abraham's going to have an heir, and all that. These angels looked like men. A lot of times we've got these big winged guys with halos and this, that, and the other. In the Bible, it talks about them looking like men. Think about the two angels that went to go see Lot in the town of Sodom. Very simply, they looked like human beings. He didn't know by any stretch of the imagination. Now, one thing that is interesting about that, and I'm going to jump forward in Hebrews here just to give you a little more insight onto these angels. In Hebrews chapter 13, which we're not going to get to for a while. I mean, we're still in chapter 1 here, and you know how I go, so it's going to take a little while. Uh, but it says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Very much true today as yesterday and tomorrow. Just the same. Now lastly, aside from them being supernatural beings, aside from them being warriors and an army and a legion and a multitude, aside from them being messengers, think about the gospel as well in Matthew chapter 4 after Jesus, once he was baptized, went into the wilderness, was tempted by the devil, and after he endured that ridiculous experience, the angels came and they ministered to him. So ultimately they are helpers and servants as well. So you've got supernatural beings, warriors, messengers, and then helpers or servants that are men in that sense. Now, why do I tell you all this? I tell you all this because Jesus is so much more than the angels. 
the angels by themselves are so impressive, you know, right? And, and mentioned in the Bible, they are God's created being. They are supernatural in nature. They are warriors, defenders, protectors, helpers, you know, messengers, all of these things. But Jesus trumps them even. And, and Jesus is above those angels too, just the same. And so, seeing that and knowing that and understanding that, let's look at the text. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. In that, know this enthronement by the father, if you will, seats Jesus, or the Son of God, is referenced in this because Jesus hasn't been mentioned, but people know that the Son of God is indeed Jesus. That to be enthroned is to be placed in a position of authority and influence, as well as possibly to seat ceremonially on a throne. Now, I think all of us kind of know that, all of us understand that, that Jesus certainly is king, but it's good. It's a reminder, it's an encouragement here because many times we're looking towards those angels or we're looking towards God's other creation, but we need to be looking towards God ultimately himself. And so you see in this first point too, which again, probably confuses a lot of us. I know it confused me in the beginning the Trinity, the Father and the Son. Because this passage also shows the full deity of the Son of God, the full godness of Jesus, if you will, because he is that Son of God. So if God has a Son, and if God is God, God the Father, then the Son is just like the Father in that way. Like, I have children, and as much as I don't like it sometimes. My children are very much like me, and that's through, you know, heredity or generationally, if you will. And so it's hard to see, but in this case, certainly they're not. And this word begotten, if you will. Now, when thinking of the Old Testament, yes, certainly the nation of Israel did ultimately know him as the father, but they didn't really use the name father until this moment in history right? When Jesus came, then it's God the Father, then it's the Son, and then you first heard about the Holy Spirit. God said earlier in the Old Testament that he would put his Spirit within you, but not Holy Spirit as well as the function of the Spirit to be the Comforter and the Helper. So, Father, Son, and the full deity of Christ, and the coming to know. And so, this is pretty key about the Trinity, is that it's there ultimately for our understanding. God is not three different people. He is one. But in order for us to begin to understand God, because he is so holy and he is so set apart from everything that we know here on earth, we needed like a tutorial. We needed this Trinity, if you will, to begin to understand, which is Bitterly ironic in a sense because it's very confusing to a lot of us. Like, how is, how is God three, you know, three in person but one in being? And so one analogy that I've come across, especially since we've moved to our new location in, in Genoa in 2018, was that I have these three trees, right? I know that they are three trees because I see the trunks, okay? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We can call each trunk that. Now, when I look up, 
and it's springtime or it's fall time, I cannot tell you where one tree begins and one tree ends because they have all interwoven their branches and their leaves together that it looks like it's just one gigantic tree. That's kind of how the Trinity works for us. And especially because we are not spiritual in nature by any stretch of the imagination. When we look up, it doesn't make sense. But God brought it down to bring it to us so that we can begin to understand these three because we're looking straight ahead. And so in order to grow in our understanding of God himself, he had to, I believe, do this Father, Son, Holy Spirit for our edification, for our understanding, for our ability to worship him and appreciate all that he has done and continues to do in the lives of his believers and his saints, as well as just in the world in general and his common grace, if you will. So I want you to see in this too, because I'm not going into like, yes, this was all taken, uh, you know, from the Psalms as well as the Old Testament, each of these little verses, but, but see it as its package and see it for what the author is trying to convey to us, that Christ certainly, he is enthroned by the Father. He is called to that, or he is sent, as we might see, God sent his only son, right? So he is sent or called to come to us, to be a part of our lives in such a unique way. But Christ, the Son of God, ultimately has four different ways of looking at this, that he is the right to be called the Son of God. One is generationally, right? We see this, and this is the whole part about the Son and being begotten. That moment when God the Father became God the Father and the Son of God, Jesus, became the Son is the moment that that was realized that they're the same, but ultimately that they're different in their responsibilities as far as their beings go. They work together for our salvation. And if you look at verse 14, like, we're going to hit on that again, but just to briefly tell you, are they not all ministering spirits sent to those who are to inherit salvation? And the angels were working towards our salvation. God the Father's working towards our salvation. The Son of God is working towards our salvation. In fact, God's name is God saves, you know, when you translate it. Or Yeshua, which is Jesus, is uh, that's God saves. And then Yahweh is God is salvation. It's always been about salvation, always with God. So you've got generationally, because the Son of God is a part of God. Just like my Son is a part of me, my DNA, my everything flows through Him. Now, it's different, but there's still a part of me that's in Him and in everything that He does. And so we see that generationally. The second way, He's sent by God. God declared, you know, and you think about the baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The voice born from heaven shouted that down. And Peter, if you go read 2 Peter, he's like, we were there, man. I heard the voice. Because he's apologetics in a sense. Like he is like, you know what? This is all real. And I'm going to tell you it's all real till the day I die. And Peter, not knowing how, he unfortunately, you know, suffered a horrible death. But he was so confident in his Lord. 
he was so encouraged by him. So he was certainly sent by God. God has, throughout the whole Old Testament, throughout all 300 different messianic prophecies that exist in the Old Testament, that this is who's coming, and he is my son, and you need to pay attention to him. It's kind of the, the, the biggest parts of the story, if you will. So, the next big important event is the resurrection. And this is when average and normal people were like, oh man, that must have been the Son of God. Because you think about the clouds got dark, the lightning struck, the ground shook, the, the temple curtain tore in two, the walls fell down. Like, something happened when Jesus died. And they're like, this must have been the Son of God. So we have that as well. And in Romans, Paul actually acknowledges this in the beginning of his letter in verse 4 of Romans chapter 1, that he was declared the Son of God. And so indeed, Jesus was declared the Son of God. It might not have been in the beginning, like you hear with you know, the angel stories to the shepherds and the star and you know, the coming and everything like that. And then you hear it at the end of his story too. You also hear it in the middle of his story you know, by the Apostle Peter. So Jesus, of course, is declared ultimately the Son of God. And then by resurrection, this is really important. He is the firstborn of the dead, or he is the first begotten of the dead, which gives all of us hope because if this was it, we're in trouble. It's just all the sin, all the destruction, no cure for sickness, no cure for suffering, no cure for death. Just meh, meh. Here's your life. Enjoy your suffering. But there's so much more to life. And I will tell you, being in Christ, the last 10 years of my life have been way more eventful and emotional, and they feel more life-filled than the 35 years that happened before it. Not to say that things didn't happen, but how much more real life is, how much more understanding of why things are the way that they are and why people are the way that they are. All of these answers. Who am I? Why am I here? What's wrong with the world? And what could be done to fix it? All found in the person and character of the Son of God, who is indeed God himself. So we see that as well. So the resurrection, and then lastly, by actual possession, being heir of all. You know, if we go back to last week uh, again, he's the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. All of these things, these are his. And just like what the psalmists have said in the Old Testament, just like what Paul reiterates in Romans, for from him and to him and through him are all things. And absolutely, actual possession, he is the heir of all. He's been outside of time and reality, but has also entered into our time and reality as a means of salvation. So, this verse 5 and this first point, this enthroned by the Father, hopefully you see that. <laughs> hopefully you see that Jesus, the Son of God, has indeed been called to a position of authority and a position of influence over all life. Not just yours or his or hers. All life. Every knee shall bow 
and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Whether that happens while people can willingly admit it because they've been changed by the Holy Spirit, or whether that comes on their judgment day in remorse and grief, most likely, uh, everyone will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's no getting around it. There's no, no way around it whatsoever. Everybody has heard the name of Jesus one time or another. What you do with that, unfortunately, but fortunately, is up to us, in a sense. It goes with that crazy free will thing. But in this, see the Son's unique place in history as the one who is enthroned and the one who is sent by the Father. And that's the first point. Second point, verse 6 to 7. He is Lord over all of God's creation. So it says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. If I was to simplify this, what this tells you is the sun is worshipped and the angels serve. Or everything else serves. But the beauty of our risen King, the beauty of our Lord and Savior, is that when He came, He did not come to be served, but He came to serve, which shows that everything was made to serve and to worship. Everything. So, everyone, everything, everywhere, every day, for all eternity is under the sun. <laughs> Praise the Lord. That should be encouragement. For some, that's a little scary. <laughs> You're like, oh dang, that means he knows. <laughs> oh no, this isn't good. But for those of us who know and have tasted and seen, certainly that the Lord is good. We know that this is a good thing because nothing is out of his sight. Nothing is out of his control. Nothing is beyond his reach. And nothing is beyond his help. And that is encouraging. At least it encourages me. I don't know about you guys, but I'm pretty encouraged by that because with Jesus being Lord of all of God's creation and having this unique position of authority and influence throughout all of human history, and again, every knee and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Everyone. You think about how many of that is over time. There's 7.6 billion people right now. That's a lot of knees. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot. Yeah, you multiply that by two, right? And you're just like, whoa. No. <laughs> but yes, ultimately, like how powerful, how amazing, what a unique position that the Son of God has. So, you know, part of the reason the author writes this, and, and it's jumping the gun a little bit for next week, is that the author is using both of these to show, again, just how beautiful the, the salvation is through Jesus and why it's so important to listen to Him. Because if we listen to the angels, as all those, you know, patriarchs did in the Old Testament, 
Why would you not listen to the Son, who's so much more superior than the angels? You trust the angels, you listen to the angels. I mean, the prophet Daniel had a visit from both Gabriel and Michael. Like, the prophet Daniel was pretty special as far as that goes. But you know, if, if we're all listening to that, and if we're listening to, again, we listen to so many different things, but why would you not listen ultimately to the Son? And especially knowing that he's enthroned by the Father and that he is the Lord of all creation. And there is no other like him throughout all of history. Just like God being holy, the Son is holy. So, moving on. Next point. Point three, verse 8 to 12. Eternally righteous King. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And let's stop there in this, and we'll carry on here in a minute. But certainly eternal, outside of time, yet at every time. He is everywhere, yet, you know, Technically nowhere at the same time because he's outside of the realm. But he is everywhere and he's with us constantly. And eternal is never ending. Never ending. So he is the never ending righteous king. He sits outside of this time and is part of every time because this is his ultimate creation. And as the psalmist says in verse 8, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Or if you go down uh, to verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And even though things will wear out like a garment, you will last forever. Again, these are eternal natures. This is encouraging that the, the good and best leader, Lord, King, ruler, that has ever existed is the one that's going to exist forever and ever and ever. So that goodness will always prevail. We won't have to deal with the sin of this world forever because God lives forever and he is righteous and sin has no place with him, as we'll see in the next point. But certainly we know his internal character. We know his righteous character, which is God's right way for creation. We go back to Genesis and we see that after God created, he declared it was good. And if it was good by God's standard, there's your standard. <laughs> How, what other standard can you go by other than the one who created everything? We try to do it by our own standards, and honestly, we end up frustrated most of the time because we want things a certain way and the world doesn't give them to us the way that we want them. So, But God's right way for creation will stand for all eternity. Now, some think it's maybe hard. You see 613 different laws in the Old Testament, like, oh man, I got to do that. But that shows the character of God again in the fact that he is holy. The whole thrust of Leviticus is be holy as I am holy. Be set apart as I am set apart. And so that's why God gave those civil laws and those ceremonial laws and uh, food laws and all those different laws to his nation of Israel to be different, to stand out from the rest of the world. 
But just like us today, we just want to be just like everyone else. Like, I want to measure up. I want to be accepted. But that's not how God wanted it. So it's very different today, though, because Jesus has fulfilled all those laws. One thing about Christianity, I feel that many of us uh, Christians have you know, gone away from is that this is a relationship. This is a covenant relationship that we have together. This isn't just a, okay, thanks God, see ya when I see ya. This is, again, this is part of the reason why I read Jeremiah last week in talking about his covenant in chapter 31, about writing the works of the law on the heart. I will be their God. They will be my people. You go to Revelation, the end of 21, God will be in our midst, and he says the same thing. I will be their God, and they will be my people. It's very important. It's very important to the Creator that the people worship him and the people love him. And it's not that he, like, you're going to, because Jesus didn't come down and lord his lordship over everyone. Again, he came to serve, and he came to love. And once you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and once you've tasted and seen his love, you want more, and you want more and more, because it is so holy and set apart from the rest of the world. It is so breathtakingly, brilliantly beautiful to experience on so many different levels, the love of God. It's that peace that surpasses all understanding that guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus because regardless of where you may find yourself, it's going to be okay. The Lord, my Father, loves me. Some of us can't earthly say that. But from a spiritual and heavenly standpoint, I absolutely can say that and I absolutely believe it because I have heard about the Son. I have beheld the Son. I realize His kingship and His lordship. I realize and taste His goodness. And I'm like, it's going to be all right. It's always going to be all right. This part may stink, but it'll move on. This is temporary. God is eternal. My affliction is temporary. God's peace is eternal. God's love is eternal. So how are those not good things? How can we not be encouraged by these facts of Scripture? The truth of Scripture. Praise the Lord for all of that. And then, of course, King. King. I feel like I've said a lot about his kingship. And so I'm just going to tell you, yeah, Jesus is Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the Creator. And that is the true King of heaven and earth and everything that's within it. So praise the Lord for all that. Now, we were talking about Jesus' deity being shown in this. And depending on how you look at this and how you interpret this and how you translate this, you can see that Jesus is actually being called God in these passages. So you see the very first one in verse 8. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now notice before that it says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Meaning Jesus' throne, because he was enthroned by the Father, 
ceremonially placed on a throne, given a position of authority and influence over all humanity. This is a reference directly to Jesus' divinity or his deity as God because the author is saying Jesus is God in this moment and in that text. Now you go down to verse 9, right after it says, you've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So, Again, I feel like this is a little bit of wordplay, right? A little bit of trickery in a sense. But it's all, again, based on interpretation and what the author is originally trying to convey. And so in this, therefore God, meaning Jesus, your God, meaning the Father, so the Son, the Father, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companion. And so that oil of gladness, I'm going to tell you something that may shock you but probably not shock you at the same time because you're all sinners. This oil of gladness beyond your companions, Jesus is more excited about your salvation than you are excited about your salvation. That's messed up. But how awesome a Lord and Savior to be more excited about bringing me home than I'm excited about bringing me home. And the only reason I'm not as excited is because I don't understand his word as much. I don't understand the spiritual nature. We talk about Ephesians chapter 2. I was born dead in my trespasses and sins against God. Born spiritually dead because I do not understand God and I do not understand his ways. So how do I get to know God and how do I get to understand his ways? Well, through his word as well as through the blessing of the Holy Spirit that he's given me in all of this. And so this oil of gladness, I, I love that, that, that verse, like, and he's anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Because who are his companions? His disciples, right? And Jesus was more excited to work with silly Peter and, you know, Paul and Mary, and then they formed a band. And, oh. <laughs> Almost. Oh, oh, wait, oh, that's a little bit different time frame. <laughs> but ultimately, again, how beautiful that is to, to see that and to know that and to acknowledge that. And again, this comes back to, you know, especially we can think of the Trinity in different ways, too, as each of the pieces, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit having a different effect on you. You know, we see the, the phrase, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, soul, and strength. So the heart is all of that that you are. Then you've got your mind your soul, and your strength. So you've got emotional in your mind, you've got your soul, which is spiritual, and you've got your strength, which is physical. Okay, so God the Father strikes me as that emotional connection that we need to have because we all understand that father-son type of relationship or father-daughter type of relationship because he is our protector and he is our provider. That is the role of a father, if you will. And so he is those things and continues to be those things. We see the Holy Spirit as the spiritual understanding. And then Jesus makes that all tangible in the physical realm because he is God that came and dwelled on earth. So again, you've got the emotional, you've got the physical, and you've got the spiritual aspects of the Trinity all working together, all 
exciting in this. And then bring it down to the end. Verse 12, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Again, pointing to the eternal nature, uh, pointing to his righteous nature, uh, pointing to his kingship. But also, the author of Hebrews ties this back up in chapter 13 again. And I'm only giving you this because it's going to be a long time away. Is that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Forever. So this kingship that he has will be the same forever. The love that he has for you will be the same forever. The grace and the mercy he gives to us forever. All of these amazing traits of our Lord forever. So you see the son's unique position throughout history. He is that eternally righteous king throughout all of time. And you see that he's been enthroned, given that unique position of authority and influence, as well as he's the Lord over all creation, as well as the creator of all creation. And then lastly, going into this point four, the biggest thing and probably what we know most about our Lord and Savior is that he indeed is victorious. And what he's victorious over is indeed sin and death. What is wrong with this world? And so to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That, of course, is a metaphor for victory. Sin and death are the enemies of an eternal and righteous king. Because sin is missing that mark of righteousness. A lot of times we think in world and society today that sin is about doing those bad things. But let me tell you, sin from Greek means hamartia, which means missing the mark. We all fail to glorify God as we ought to. It's not so much about the things you do, it's the things you don't do. That's really what sin is about, and that's why everyone stands condemned, because we're born spiritually dead and don't understand God. So how on earth do we you know, worship and praise Him and glorify Him as we were originally created to do? And, and so here's the thing. We all had choices. But the problem is, is our choices led us to worship ourselves. We always are looking to glorify ourselves rather than to glorify our Father as we were created to glorify. So those aspects, especially death, how unnatural is death considering we have an eternal king and an eternal creator. Death makes no sense to us. This is why it bothers us so immensely. Yes, we feel sad for those that we have lost, but we also are like, man, that's it. And we don't know. And many people don't know that there is indeed life after death, that there is indeed a creator. Some people are happy thinking that, oh, this world's an accident, and I'm just going to do the best I can with what I got in the time now, and I'm going to get my money, and I'm going to get my relationships, I'm going to try to be powerful, I'm going to you know, try to whatever. The list goes on and on and on and on. But we've all failed to glorify God as we ought to in that, and that's exactly what sin is. So again, it's not so much what you do that you know is wrong. It's all the things that you're not doing that really causes reflection and makes you think. And that's why being a Christian, being a disciple and follower of Jesus is so revolutionary because it fills that gap because now you're going to start glorifying God, not yourself. That's crazy. <laughs> but again, that's why 
Christianity in its truest sense is completely countercultural. There are many churches that are right now this morning glorifying the people, telling them how awesome they are, not because God is awesome, but because God has done something for you and then you should do it because you are awesome. But every week I remind you of how awesome your Lord is and to remind us of our place in this world and in society as a whole. Like we are different because we are Christ's and we no longer live for ourselves. We live for him and we live for others. We serve just as the angels serve too. So I sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet. Yes, we know that Jesus did come to combat sin and death and sin and death are destroyed through Jesus's resurrection. Since he is the firstborn, he is the begotten of the dead. And God has raised him, thus giving us hope. Because if we as Christians have our hope in this life only, then certainly we are all people most to be pitied because this is a, a sacrificial life. We are called to suffer as Christ has suffered. So if this is the joy we get from life for suffering, well, I don't blame anybody for staying away, right? But once again, you come to know the Lord. To know him is to love him. To love him is to trust him. And when you love him and you trust him, you serve him. This is just how the natural ebb and flow goes. And so some people miss the mark. Some people miss the point. Some people let life stuff get in their way. But here's the thing. The creator and the giver of life dictates your life, ultimately. Yes, you make decisions on a daily basis. Yes, there are consequences for our decisions and actions and whatnot. But God is sovereign over all things, as this text says, and it tells us. So that resurrection is really important <laughs> because that's what gives us hope for a new life. And so do not all things exist and continue for the sake of God's elect to be saved. I've just paraphrased verse 14 for you again because verse 14 is important for you to think about and for you to consider, and especially as you consider life goals and life meanings. Verse 14 in the text itself says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Paraphrased, do not all things exist and continue for the sake of God's elect to be saved. And that's why the angels came. That's why the Son came. Whether we talk about the Son or we talk about the angels, were they not, again, all about the salvation of those who are to inherit salvation? You know, I mentioned that the prophet Daniel uh, had both Gabriel and Michael help him out. Like, that's pretty impressive. That didn't happen anywhere else in the Bible where both of them are, are there to help one man. And yet, here they are. And they came. But is Daniel not one of God's elect? Is Daniel not one of God's saved? Like, yes, he is. He was a prophet for him. And so we see them working again towards helping those of us who are on earth, you know, achieve that salvation to get through that life. Remember what I told you in the beginning, too, is that in Christ, because he is the heir of all things, and Jesus calls us friend despite us you know, him, the, the Lord and servant relationship, he still loves us and calls us friend. Being in him later on, we will be above the 
angels. There will be Jesus, there will be human beings, then there will be angels, and then many other things that fall underneath. But how beautiful and magnificent is that to look forward to in our lives and what God has done for us in all that. So if angels are trustworthy, how much more trustworthy is the Son? Right? So Jesus' unique position throughout history to be the perfect and spotless sacrificial Lamb of God for the sins of mankind. He is that perfect priest making atonement for sins who also reigns as king and then also has given us his prophetic word and declared what the kingdom of God is to look like. I want you to know that your faith is not misplaced in Christ. It is not misplaced in the Son of God. I want you to be encouraged. Don't let this world tell you about all these other things and all these different ways and all these different methods of making your life better or another you know, self-help thing or another way of you know, dealing with life or another workspace system that's going to transform you or anything else. What you need to know is you need to know Jesus. The long and the short of it. The beginning and the end in all of this. He is the way back to God as our mediator. He is the only way back to God as our mediator. And that's why I keep bringing up prophet, priest, and king because those are the three roles in the Old Testament that you see. Those are mediatory like, you know, uh, counsels for God to his people. God anointed the prophets. God anointed the priests. God um, is king, but has anointed a king for the people as well throughout redemptive history. Now, in the person and the character of the Son of God, all of those are realized together at once. So, to know him is to love him. To love him is to trust him. And then to trust him is to ultimately serve him. Praise the Lord for all of these things. Praise the Lord for this encouragement in the scriptures, again, to continue to point out and remind us of the truth of why we're here and who's in charge. <laughs> and so, love you, Jesus. <laughs> as simple as that gets. So, he is that true prophet, peace, and king. He is the eternally righteous king. He was enthroned by the Father. He's the Lord of all God's creation. He is the heir of all things. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He made purification for sins. He sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high and has a name much more superior than the angels throughout all of redemptive history. And that is just a little bit about how incredible our Lord and Savior Jesus is. So, Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you again for your word and this morning and certainly how you've led the author of Hebrews to um, exhort and encourage us in truths that we know, but truths that we need to be reminded on every single day of our lives. Because as the world comes and as the storm comes, we quickly fall away, we quickly find our place small and insignificant most of the time in wherever we're at. But Lord, you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. You have 
called us to be a part of your kingdom. And we just thank you for that. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in such a way. And thank you for bringing us back together, for reconciling our relationships so that we can go forward in the good news, in the grace and the mercy of your gospel and, and life for us. So be with us, continue to be with us, and as always, we will thank you. It's in your name, Jesus, we will forever pray. Amen.